Luke chapter 16 is our text for today, for today's sermon, beginning on page 1625. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, What a blessing it is to come before God's word and to, to hear and to read these words inspired by his spirit given to us, handed down through the ages. Luke 16, just uh, 14 through 18 today is the sermon text, but let's begin at verse 10 so we can gain some of the context. So Luke 16, verse 10, we read this, these words of Jesus after he tells this parable, the dishonest manager. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. When something fails miserably, a business strategy, an idea for how to repair a broken friendship, maybe a plan, some kind of project at home, our instinct is usually not to just start over again with the same plan. A lot of times we say, no, we need to scrap that strategy, develop a new one, and then try that out. I was talking to a friend this week who was dealing with a a failed project at work, just in his eyes a complete and utter failure. And he said simply he has no energy to try the same thing over again. If he's going to have his heart in it, he needs to scrap it, develop something new, and start over. That's kind of the way that we tend to deal with miserable failure. Jesus brings before us a miserable failure in this passage. And that miserable failure is what happens when human beings try to achieve and try to merit their own righteousness before God by their actions. This is a miserable failure that should compel us, cause us to look elsewhere, to find a new strategy, to find something new to answer the problem of righteousness. See, this failure is centered around the human heart. And contrary to modern sentiment, Our hearts are not all that good at all. Perhaps you've heard people say things like, 
God knows my heart. Only God can judge me. And that should never be used as a license to sin or as a good idea for a tattoo, but rather a reason to run away from yourself. To abandon the things you find within yourself and run to the only one who can enfold us in his righteousness. And that is the one who speaks these words. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's our central truth for this morning. God sees through our outward displays of righteousness into the inward reality of our hearts. And the inward reality of our hearts universally condemns us. And it shows that righteousness through the law is an impossibility. Here's the life-transforming reality that comes forth from that truth. The impossibility of righteousness through the law should compel us to run to, love, adore, and treasure Christ as supreme above all things. To run to, love, adore, and treasure Christ as supreme above all things. Here are the themes that we'll trace and draw out from this passage. First, we see skin-deep approval. Secondly, We see heart-deep assessment. And then thirdly, eternal acceptance. Skin-deep approval, heart-deep assessment, and eternal acceptance. I'll try to keep it uh, within a reasonable time frame, but you guys gave me last week off, so I have a lot of pent-up energy, so we'll see how long this goes. At the beginning of this short passage, we see that attention shifts back to the Pharisees, the Pharisees who have, just, who have a reaction to all of the things that Jesus has just said, particularly with what he says in regards to money. And he says that, uh, that short little blurb on money in verses 10 through 13 on the heels of this series of parables that he has just finished. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons, and the shrewd or the dishonest manager. And all four of these parables do something really surprising with earthly value and priorities and what the the reality of the kingdom of God does to us when we are transformed and then how we begin to view things with earthly value and how we prioritize the things of our lives. For instance, surprising thing that happens in the parable of of the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99, it says leaves them in the wilderness, so at least exposed, even if not in in immediate danger, leaves them exposed to go find the one. The father of the prodigal son throws a banquet for his son who returns home right on the heels of his son, squandering a third of all that he is worth. He spends more money, uses what is valuable, slays the, the fattened calf for him. Something surprising with money and earthly value. In uh, the parable of the shrewd manager, he's just forgiving debt. He's wiping it away. He's erasing it. The kingdom of God, the realities of the kingdom of God, do these kinds of things with the way that we think about earthly goods, the way that we think about priorities in this life. And so Jesus ends by this short little, these short little sayings, and he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees sneer at Jesus, it says. That's a very strong word, somewhat of a rare word in the Bible, and very distinct. It means to turn up your nose, right? to become a judge to what has just been said, and to condemn what you have just heard. So the Pharisees are sneering at Jesus, and, and this actually gives us a picture into the sufferings of Jesus in his human nature. 
This word, like I said, is is not sprinkled all throughout the Bible. It's only found a handful of times. And one of the times where it's found is in Psalm 22, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Psalm 22. And that, of course, is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then later on in the psalm, it says this. David writes, all those who see me sneer at me. They hurl insults shaking their heads. And what David is showing us there is that as the anointed one of God, he had been chosen by God. He had been set on the throne, set apart to be the representative of God on earth. But not everyone agrees with God's judgment in making David king. Because that's really what, what it means to be the anointed one of God. This is God's man to rule and to reign. And so often when you find that kind of language in the psalm, where it seems almost a little bit self-centered, that's because David is seeing himself as the anointed one of God. That's exactly the reason why he never wants to come against Saul. Remember, he's very careful about not lifting his hand against Saul as long as Saul is reigning on the throne, because Saul is the Lord's anointed. So when David becomes king, and he sees people who are... executing strategies to try and remove him from his place of authority. That's why he speaks in those ways. All those who see me, they sneer at me. They're coming against the Lord's anointed. And that is what happens in the life of Jesus Christ. The anointed Son of God, the one who was sent from heaven to earth. The beloved Son in whom the Father was well pleased. And so when the Pharisees are sneering at Jesus, they're giving us this glimpse into the sufferings of Christ in his human nature who, though he was sinless, was judged by sinful men. We'll actually read later on in Luke. This word does occur again in the Gospel of Luke. And as Jesus hangs there on the cross, the leaders in Israel sneer at Jesus. They sneer at Jesus. Why? Because they are lovers of money. Now, we probably think uh, we, we can construct a pretty accurate mental picture when we hear that. Okay, I know what it means to love money, to be greedy, Sort of be like Ebenezer Scrooge, you hoard the money for yourself, you never share it with those around you. But that actually was not the kind of love of money we're talking about when we're talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not love money in that way. They did not hoard it for themselves and live lavish lifestyles and spend it on themselves. Rather, their approach to money was this. They used it as a means to prove their righteousness before men. They saw it as a tool They saw it as an instrument. They saw saw it as something uh, to show people around them that they were worthy of being justified. What does justified mean? It means to be declared righteous. It means to be recognized as right with God and morally sound and pure. See, the Pharisees are thinking that they are achieving this righteousness on their own because they're maintaining a more moral lifestyle than this neighbor and that neighbor and elevating themselves and thinking that if this is how the world sees it, that we as a group are the righteous ones, then surely God would look upon earth and he would see it the same way. So they often lived humble lifestyles or at least what we would call perhaps middle class lifestyles, not lavishly. They tithed, they gave alms to the poor But what would they do? They would sound the trumpet as they did it. They would make sure that everyone knew exactly what it was that they were giving. And if it was a generous amount, they would have to know exactly how much it was. They would make sure it was known how much they were giving. And human beings are tricked easily uh, with with these kinds of things. I still remember being a kid. 
uh, in, in the mid to late 1990s. Sorry if that's depressing for some of you to hear. I was growing up in the, in the 90s. And I remember Ted Turner, maybe some of you remember this, he gave a billion dollars to the United Nations. And um, I just thought it was strange that we kind of knew exactly what he was giving. He was talking about exactly, and now that's an extremely generous gift, don't get me wrong. But I remember that being on the news day after day for about a week straight and people talking about it and just lauding his generosity, which perhaps that was good and right. But I think it illustrated, even back then for me, the fact that we get so caught up in these human displays of righteousness. And our instinct is to, is to look at someone who does something that perhaps is generous in that kind of a way, and we're so impressed by it. And perhaps we impute to that person the purest of motives. Now, certainly, that probably could have come from a good place, and he wanted the world to be bettered through his donation. But it shows just how easily we can be fooled and how easily we uh, can attribute something to someone that maybe we don't have the right to make a judgment. So for the Pharisees, money was how they attained their righteousness. It was a tool. It was an instrument. And what's important to remember is that you will love whatever it is that makes you righteous. You will love whatever it is that makes you righteous. And so the Pharisees said, we use our money to attain eternal life, to prove our righteousness, to justify ourselves, Therefore, money is good to us. We love our money. We treasure it because that is how we build up our righteousness. You can go back and read Teachers of the Law back from that time and even afterwards that the money that you give is what attains your eternal life. But that's a skin-deep approval, isn't it? This is exactly what Jesus says, right? It's justification in the eyes of men. You justify yourselves before men. Jesus says. This is something we obviously resonate with as, as fallen creatures, as, as those who are flawed. We, we often engage in these kinds of things, trying to justify ourselves in the eyes of our fellow human beings. Just the fact that there could be a phrase uh, like virtue signaling that we hear about all the time now, it shows how much people are concerned with showing forth a display of righteousness to a watching world. It's not just people, but colleges, corporations, businesses, taking moral and political stances on things in order to signal their virtue to a watching world. Fascinating. Classically, virtue, of course, is conceived as something that's deep within you, that only would be visible to God. It may shape and form the way that you act. It may shape and form your actions, but you can't see someone else's virtue. And yet, we see in so many ways that this is the way that the world is operating. Jesus made the same point talking in Luke chapter 11 to the Pharisees. He used the illustration of a cup. And he said, you're clean on the outside, but the inside is filthy. Inside, he says to them, you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, Jesus says, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He says this, give as alms those things that are within you say, it's not good enough to just give outwardly. Give yourself to the Lord, and behold, everything will be clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. The Pharisees said, this, this is righteousness that is worked out on the plane of this world. And so they loved their money, because their money was a tool that they used to be righteous. That's a skin-deep 
approval. That's a judgment that can only be rendered by human beings. What happens when we go deeper than skin-deep approval? And we go to a heart-deep assessment. Uh, G.K. Chesterton made the observation that, uh, in, in his book, Heretics, that classically, traditionally, words like rebel, charlatan, libertine, Uh, These would have been things that would have been an insult or would have been negative. But what's fascinating about the turn of modernity is that these came to be almost uh, reasons to, to, to boast in something. Yeah, I'm a rebel. Yeah, I live exactly the way that I want to live. And what becomes so fascinating about that, because that's certainly the world in which we live, right? I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. I can love whoever I want. What, what is so fascinating about that is that oftentimes this passage is invoked in order to justify people living in whatever way they want. Only God can judge me. God knows my heart. You can see it in little ways, right? Perhaps you have a Christian friend and, and they say something filthy and nasty. You might call them on it and they'll say, hey man, only God can judge me. God knows my heart. So in other words, they're saying, yeah, I may have just sinned right there, but really my heart is pure. Really, I have a good heart, and only God can judge me. Friends, none of our hearts are good in and of themselves. And it is very bad news that God knows our hearts. That is the point of this passage. Jesus says, as you dig deeper than skin deep, and go to a heart-deep assessment, if God knows your heart, that is very bad news. Jeremiah 17, quote it from time to time here. We've, most of us have heard it before. What? The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then verse 10 goes on to say this. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Bad news. Genesis chapter 6. The Lord, as he, before he's going to destroy the world with the flood... He looks down, he sees his creation, he looks at the human race, and what does he see? The thoughts and the intentions of the heart of man is only evil, continually. So when people say, only God can judge me, God knows my heart, they've completely reversed the intention of this passage. It's not good news, it is bad news. Why? Because what human beings think is righteous, what human beings think is pure, what human beings think is worthy of being justified is not. That's what Jesus says. What is highly honored in the sight of man is detestable in the sight of God. He smacks those two ideas back to back. Actually, in the Greek, those two words occur consecutively. What is highly honored, detestable. In order to bring forth that idea that we do not see things the way that God sees them. We do not have the righteous lens that he does. That word for detestable is actually the word abomination. Which we save save that word for the worst things. Hitler's, Stalin's, slavery, concentration camps, abortion. So the question is this. How much are we understanding what Jesus says here? To remind ourselves day by day, perhaps even hour by hour, what is highly honored among men is detestable in the sight of God. I love the way that our Reformed brother put it, who has gone on to be with the Lord in the last year, R.C. Sproul, he said this. Sin is cosmic treason. 
cosmic treason. I think it's a wonderful way to describe it because it sort of jolts you. You don't hear phrases like that often. Cosmic, grand scale, treason. Worst kind of betrayal. He goes on to say this. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme. Notice the adjectives he uses. Supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. To the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered, he says, the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute transgression? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. Cosmic treason. So, are we considering, are we growing in our understanding of knowing how much our sin is an offense to a holy God? Or do we operate like the Pharisees did, skin deep, looking for the approval of men and doing things that are impressive to man? With saying that, Jesus then moves to this discussion of entering the kingdom of God. The Pharisees are thinking they'll enter the kingdom of God through the means of their money, which they love, which they use to show forth their righteousness. So Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Commentators, scholars, even translators have puzzled about what Jesus means here, about this forcing your way into the kingdom. The word it has negative connotations. It usually means using violence or force your way into somewhere, through a door, through a gate, over a wall, or over a fence. And so it, it seems most natural to think that Jesus is assessing what it is that the Pharisees do. They are the ones who try to force themselves into the kingdom by using their man-made righteousness, usually how they use money, and putting that on display in order to force their way into the kingdom of God. But what is entrance into the kingdom of God? How does that happen? It's a gift. Entrance into the kingdom is freely offered by Jesus. It's a kingdom entered through faith and repentance, through humility and contrition. It's a gift. It's not something that can be forced into by means of violence. It's a gift. So what Jesus says in in the last couple of verses here, he puts the mentality of the Pharisees to the test. And he nails them right between the eyes by using this example of marriage. Jesus first says in verse 17, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Not an easy thing to do. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the least stroke of the law to be removed. And Jesus is not speaking here about the first five books of the Bible, but rather the eternal and unchanging law of God. It never changes. It never fails. It searches us out. It goes deep to assess the condition of our hearts. And so with that in mind, Jesus applies it to a specific issue in their day. Verse 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. People say, that seems out of place. Not sure why Jesus sort of changed course there and is talking about something completely different. But that is not what he is doing. 
Jesus is showing here what it actually means or what it actually would require to be justified by the law or through the law before God. That's the approach of the Pharisees. Show forth your own righteousness. Use your money. Use the resources you have to show how righteous you are. Let your good deeds be seen before men. Be more righteous than this neighbor and more righteous than that neighbor. So Jesus is not teaching on marriage per se, though he's showing us the reality of the law, but rather he is using it to show how deep the law's demands go. Remember in Mark chapter 10, the the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Moses told us that if we want a divorce, just hand a certificate and uh, go through that technical process, uh, dot the I's and cross the T's, and you're good. What do you think about that? Jesus says, Moses gave you that allowance because of your hardness of heart. Moses said that because this is a fallen world and because you are all sinful and because relationships fall apart and people betray one another. Jesus pulls back the curtain. He says, let me tell you about what marriage was like before sin entered the world of what the the, the true meaning of that law is. It was never given, the book of Genesis, in order to be something that can be formed and then broken, formed and broken. You can come and go as you please. So Jesus is doing that to give us a glimpse into the truth of the depth of the law of marriage, even while at other points in the gospel he will say things like, if anyone divorces except for, in the case of Uh, unchastity or unfaithfulness, right? So there are other ways that Jesus speaks about it, but he gives us this glimpse into the eternal and unchanging law of God to say this is the truth, and if you would be justified before the law or before God by the law, this is the kind of righteousness you would have to have. You cannot fail on one point, and he uses this example because in that time, the Pharisees had all kinds of loopholes, all kinds of allowances for marriage and divorce. Ridiculous reasons they would have to allow a husband to hand his wife a certificate of divorce. Things like a bad dinner, a messy house. Not, not kidding, you can find writings from that time uh, for those reasons. So Jesus nails the Pharisees right between the eyes. And he looks into their life, their reality. He says, let's put your mentality to the test. You want to be justified? before God by the law, here's how obedient you have to be. Here's how deep the law searches us and finds out our sin and finds out how messy we are. So that's the grim reality of this passage. Righteousness through the law is an impossibility. It's a miserable failure. But what does it do? It causes us to run somewhere else. It causes us to scrap that strategy. Got to start over something new somewhere else. Where do I go? Where do I turn? And the beautiful reality of this passage is that we speak to, or we turn to the one who speaks the lines of this passage. The one who is speaking all of these things. Think about all the things that Jesus has said recently in the Gospel of Luke. The parables of grace, the lavish forgiveness that's poured out upon us from the throne room of heaven. And then think about that even while Jesus is saying these words, Even while Jesus is searching out the hearts of his listeners, 
Even while Jesus is talking about what is highly valued among man is detestable in the sight of God, he's speaking that as the God-man. So he's talking about his own ability to judge that. Even while he's saying that, he was bearing those very detestable things, those very abominations in the sight of God, bearing them in his human nature in order to be the righteous sacrifice for sin, in order to redeem those who were his own. As he says that the walls are too high to be breached into the kingdom of God, he's saying that as one who has come over, who has come over the walls himself to find us in a distant country, to seek and to save the lost, to bring us back and to give us a home in the house of his heavenly father. See, what this passage is teaching us is that it is Christ and Christ alone who saves The road of the law, the road of the gospel. Righteousness through obedience, righteousness through grace and forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. Remember I said, that which makes you righteous will be that which you love. The Pharisees loved money, why? Because it was a tool, an instrument for them to prove their righteousness to the world. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, when you realize that it is only Jesus Christ who makes you righteous... When you realize that it is his life, his obedience that is granted to us by faith. And that it is he who redeems us. And that it is, it is he who brings us to his heavenly father. Should not we love and run to and adore and treasure Christ as supreme above all things? Of course we should. You will love that which makes you righteous. Do you know? Have you considered that only Christ makes you righteous. Without Christ, our hearts, the best things about us that we bring before God remain an abomination, remain detestable. But with Christ, we are given that perfect row of his righteousness. You see, there's, there is the skin-deep approval of the world, which, is, which flies in the face of the heart-deep assessment of God. But then the reality of Christ is eternal acceptance. It's not just eternal acceptance. It's that when our love, when our hearts are are filled up with the love of Christ, overflowing with adoration for him in the power of the gospel fueled by faith and the Holy Spirit given to us by faith in Christ. It's not just the reality of eternal acceptance, but internal adorning, that we adorn ourselves in the inner person of our hearts before God, knowing and seeing the life to which he has called us. It's fueled by our faith and love and devotion for Christ, with the Holy Spirit working in our hearts through the means of grace, through the, through the truth of God's word, through our prayer, through our fellowship with one another, through our encouraging one another to look to Christ and to treasure him and to continue to love and to grow in your love for him, for only he makes you righteous. Think of the words of 1 Peter when, where he's speaking to women, but really you could, you could apply it to, to all of us today. He says uh, to the women to whom he's writing, don't be concerned with the outward appearance. And there he's speaking about physical appearance. He says, be concerned with the internal adorning of your hearts. Today we might say, don't be concerned, as Jesus says, don't be concerned with your outward displays of righteousness to be seen before men. Think about how God sees your heart and overflow with love and devotion to Christ. Run to him, treasure him, 
as supreme above all things, and then realize what your Savior calls you to do, how he calls you to live. And as you are dripping with the love of Christ and fueled by the power of the gospel as the Spirit is given to you, then the internal beauty of your heart will grow before the living God. And that is what shapes and forms the way that we act day after day for his glory, for the good of his name, the sake of his name on this earth. Skin deep approval, run away from it. Remember the heart deep assessment that God gives to us. Treasure the eternal acceptance that you have in Christ. And then strive, fueled by the gospel, fueled by your faith, for the glory of God. Strive for the internal adorning that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that we would think about it, we would meditate on it, that you would apply these words to our hearts, and that we would treasure the truth of Christ, and that we would grow ever in our love for him, for it is he who makes us righteous. Thank you for him and for his work. We pray in his name. Amen. And we'll sing... To close our time together, number